0: Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast, can at times contain adult language and themes. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Welcome to the Digital Dissection podcast, where we take a closer and possibly unnecessary look at our favorite properties, creators, and topics. We are your humble hosts, Joe and Mark. Mark. Two pop culture nerds dedicated to telling entertainment history before it's forgotten too soon. Join us on Facebook, Twitter, and our blog for more information on the show. We also love to hear from you, so why not write us at digital dissection podcast at gmail.com. And now that we've got that out of the way, let's get to dissecting.
0: Welcome back, pop culture nerds to Digital Dissection. We have the honor of speaking to some pretty incredible creators on this show, and today's guest is no exception. He's been designing, programming, and producing for the last four decades, lending his talents to companies like Milton Bradley, LucasArts, DreamWorks, and Google. You might recognize a few of them. He is founder of the design firm Inspiracy, shaping experiences for companies in many different industries. We welcome Noah Falstein. Noah, how are we doing tonight?
2: Great, glad to be here.
0: Awesome, well, it's good to see you joining me on this conversation tonight. Uh, you know, Noah, you've obviously met them, but some of our viewers may need to hear it again. <laughs> my my fellow host Joe Venable is sitting in the other seat, and we're also joined by my older brother Nate Binky, who's wearing a just a wonderful hat tonight. I believe it is uh, Vince Lombardi inspired. So. Welcome in, everybody. So, Noah, we do appreciate you joining us. And, of course, the reason why we reached out to you was founded in the fact that Nate and I have spent countless hours in front of your games, and really it's kind of shaped the way that we think. Uh, I guess, have people come at you before who are fans that gave you a lot of credit about shaping their critical thinking skills and kind of leading them down that path?
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's an interesting thing. Uh, My daughter really nailed it when you know she told me that she had a friend, um, you know, ask about her father when she heard that I made video games, and she said, "Is he famous?" And she thought for a moment and said, "Well, it's kind of like the Harry Potter world. If you're a muggle, you have no idea who he is, but if you're you know in the wizarding class, he's actually pretty cool." And that that captured it pretty well, you know. (laughs) That I've, I've I've had people where I say what I do, and they look at me like I'm you know, some, uh, someone degrading the youth of today by making these awful video games. And, you know, the other extreme is I was in a, a line at a conference in, um, I think it was at a conference in Paris and just waiting to get a sandwich. And I started to chat with the guy ahead of me and we were having a nice conversation and he looked out at my badge and he said, you're the Noah Falstein from LucasArts? And I said, yeah. And he literally could not speak for about thirty seconds. He just <laughs> lost his ability to speak English and was totally flustered. So, usually it's somewhere you know way on the other end of that. Of you know, oh, video games. So, did you make Doom? I said no. No, I know the guy, but that wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say
0: you you take that back because some people believe that Doom was like the uh, the beginning of where point and click games kind of saw that that downward slope and. Yep. I mean, is 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 that kind of where you see that same place in pop culture history? I mean, what do you think?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. There, there's no doubt that the rise of first-person shooters uh, was a big factor in the you know implosion of of uh, graphic adventures at the time because they were reaching a larger audience at about oh I don't know maybe a quarter of the cost um, and. But I've I've gotten to know John Romero pretty well, and uh, he's just a really nice guy and I don't hold it against him. Uh, I mean, the whole games industry, we're used to the fact that whenever we release a new game, part of the uh, strategy behind it is to sabotage, you know, all of our competitors and hope that they play it for the next few weeks and don't get their games out on time.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. If and, and for those who know, John Romero, uh, that was definitely something that plagued him a little bit later in his career. Which you know we won't go into that today. <laughs> but to tell you what, for those that listen to this program, and we do have the stats, we do have a lot of listeners that are in the Midwest. And uh, for Noah, we understand that you, you're Chicago-born and raised, the Chicago way, as, as Sean Connery would say. Um, and so, I, I guess, how long were you actually in the Midwest before you? you know, headed out uh, for education and technology.
2: So I, I grew up, you know, stayed was in the same house on the, the far north side of Chicago from, you know, all through high school, you know, from birth through high school, um, went off to Massachusetts uh, for college and for a few years after that, and then came back to Chicago for a couple of years when I was doing arcade games at uh, what was then Williams Electronics and they're, they're now a part of Midway. Um, So, you know, 18 years plus another two or so after I was in my 20s. Uh, And, of course, a lot of visits back and forth. Um, In fact, I well, not too recently, but I've been working with a company called Level X in Chicago that's doing games for health, too.
0: Oh, very cool. Yeah, and I remember seeing some of that, too, um, because I followed your career ever since I was a kid. And so I did happen to see this this trajectory kind of go, especially with your design firm as you've kind of diversified your portfolio and getting into like VR and education based technologies and everything, which is, you know, pretty awesome. From what I can tell though, this is me trying to look at what's out there, right? Because Wikipedia can only tell us so much. But if we had to borrow from Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross for always be closing, it feels like you have always been designing in, in one way or another from childhood all the way to now because you were actually making like augmented pieces for your own toys. Isn't that right? Like cardboard and stuff like that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I will say I, I had an opportunity to, you know, talk to one of the Wikipedia experts, uh, sorry, editors that, you know, updated everything. So as of, well, I don't know, six months or so ago, it got a nice upgrade and it's, it's pretty current. And yeah, I, you know, as a kid, this is true of a lot of my designer friends that we have a, a huge number of personality traits in common. And you know, it's it's not so much that you can tell from what you were doing as a kid that that predicted your uh, career path because obviously there's just a million ways you can cut that. But looking in the other direction, it's pretty clear, as you say, I've been designing games and, and playing games and wanting to change the rules or being a, a, a critic of, uh, hey, it shouldn't quite work this way. It would be more fun if we did this other thing. Pretty much all of my friends did that, you know, before they got into it professionally, because that's just uh, the way we think. And yeah, I would play games. Uh, uh, I'd rather make games that, you know, I, I used uh, toys. I used um, existing games and changed the the counters and gave them different capabilities, that sort of thing, yeah. different
0: that's very cool. well it's it actually leads us into a question we got from the fans here, which uh, Joe, I'll actually let you take that that first one if you want um uh, it's a it's a pretty cool one that
2: ties into this
1: uh, you designed your own board games at an early age. What kind of games were you making, and do any of them still exist? <laughs>
2: Huh, interesting question. Well, that's great. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before in an interview, so you guys score a lot of points for that. Um, <laughs> well, I did a, a, a couple of small ones, but I did one really big game that the easiest way to describe it is that it was a board game version that is has been eerily identical to Nintendo's Advance Wars uh, series. And in particular, I've been playing, in fact, I'm never very far from it. Uh, I've got my little Nintendo DS with the oh, dance boards nice. loaded up right now. Because <laughs> it's <laughs> to this day the game that I've played more than anything else because they seem to kind of catch the the zeitgeist that I, I really like of a uh, uh, turn-based uh, strategy game with you know 1960s-era military hardware. I guess it's the easiest way to put mm-hmm. it. And I did one with hundreds of counters. And unfortunately, the board... Did not survive, um, you know, my my parents finally selling off the house and everything, but I still have a bunch of the counters stuck off in a box in my garage, just for nostalgic purposes, just reminding me of all the the time I spent playing that game. Usually by myself, I managed to get a couple of friends hooked in, but mostly it was kind of self-play testing. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's that's how we did it too growing up. I mean, it's it's not really any different than uh, customizing D&D for our own, you know, uh, for our own campaigns. And for Nate and I, it was messing with like the GameShark peripherals, the Game Gear peripherals on the consoles that we had to, you know, shift the game's narrative and all that. So that's, that's really cool. I, and, and like my suspicion was this was always something that was in you. I didn't think you had to necessarily try it out for a while. Like you were just doing this from day one, I imagine. So.
2: Yeah, I mean, as I say, it's it's kind of, um, there's a group that I helped organize of uh, game designers. We've been meeting regularly, you know, once a year since, uh, I think it's 99 that we've been doing this. And it's a lot of, you know, I, we're, we're a semi-private group, so I won't name names, but many people <laughs> I'm sure you've interviewed, you know, particularly uh, almost everybody who worked on Notable multiplayer uh, RPGs, you know, in in the first couple of decades of the century. Um, anyway, when we compare notes, it's amazing to me to see the the similarities. That at one point somebody said, "So, how many people here um, have tried Myers Briggs and know what their score is?" And basically, every single hand went up. And then we found that uh, I think it was like three quarters of the group fit into. INTJ or ENTJ, which together are about 3% of the population. So, you know, for, there you go. So, so for uh, uh, magic this uh, way. Yeah. And then for, um, you know, a lot of people have worked with a lot of uh, psychologists and brain uh, researchers, and a lot of them are skeptical about Myers-Briggs, but the fact that there was such a close correlation there is Made me feel there was something to it, and and almost all of us were really into games as kids, and uh, it was a major part of our pleasure as a child, which I think is why we end up doing it today.
0: Yeah, I mean, I based on a lifetime with my brother Nate. Okay, you may not be able to see the trauma that's here, but but knowing knowing <laughs> how <laughs> knowing how Nate's wired, and and just just listening to things you said in previous interviews, I mean, you're definitely wired differently and it's it's to a level that I think other folks just won't ever achieve, right? it's It's not that uh, anyone's, you know, uh, I don't want to call it like a hierarchy based thing, but I mean, I, I I understand the vibe, like I really do. And we're all we're all nerdy in our own different ways, right? Um, so you've you've got a different pathway that you can follow down, which kind of leads me into wanting to just hear a little bit about your your collegiate experience because it's not every day that. You hear experimental alternative education, and so we wanted to understand a little bit about Hampshire College and maybe how that played into your your learning style and 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 uh, yeah, just the way you think.
2: Oh, sure. So that was a huge influence on me. It's a little college in Western Massachusetts, and it was had only been open for five years when I uh, went there uh, in in '75. And uh, experimental college, was, it was part of what was called the five college consortium. The other four colleges were 100 plus years older and much more better known. Uh, UMass Amherst, uh, Amherst College, Smith College, and Mount Holyoke. And uh, Hampshire was the upstart, and it was built out of uh, 1950s and 60s, you know, revolution and thinking and the ways that, you know, things could be put together. No grades. No um, grades. They had a structure where you did these big independent projects to progress through. And uh, just luckily for me, they were very open to new thinking. And I was learning computer programming. I was learning physics and astronomy. um, And I ended up getting hooked on computer games uh, pretty much my first week there um, because one of the older students who was helping teach a, a class in computer programming in a language called APL that is uh, very fun you know, people are very fond of it who, who used it back in the, the 60s and 70s but it's completely uh, uh, defunct now anyway um, he said hey if you want to stay after class we've got some games you can play and we were playing these games on the UMass mainframe through uh, you know modems phone modems that were, Oh, it was 120 baud, I think. It wasn't even the 300 baud that you ended up getting, you know, later. Um,
3: Our first was 2400, so.
2: But, yeah, so it was just, uh, I mean, 120 baud was so slow, you could literally type faster than the connection would be able to accept it. So you had to kind of slow down your your typing sometimes. Um, But it had some really great uh, computer games, some of the early text-based computer games, and that got me hooked. And Hampshire let me uh, do a number of projects, concluding with a big senior project that I thought I was doing because I wanted to show off my coding skills and what I learned about physics and astronomy. But I didn't realize that by making games, I was actually rehearsing for a career because at that point in the late 70s, the thought of actually, you know, making a living, making video game. I mean, even video games were a brand new thing, uh, you know, up until my last year at college, all the, the games were on um, uh, teletype machines and, you know, IBM Selectrics, you know, they were printing it out on paper. And suddenly we got one video terminal and I said, whoa, this is going to be so good for games. And that's how I did my big senior project.
0: That's very cool. And it, honestly, it mirrors some of the experiences we've heard from other fellow, you know, video game developers, because uh, Josh Sawyer ended up getting into the video game industry because he was a web developer at one point, and then made the jump to programming. And I mean, Al Lowe was a, you know, school teacher, and then decided, hey, honey, can we take a month of, our, of our, <laughs> our wages and throw it at a new computer? <laughs> so I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure it's standardized a little bit more now. But a lot of the folks we've talked to have kind of gone through that kind of journey. So it's, it's interesting to hear, you know, kind of where you got started with yours, but speaking of Al for a moment, Noah uh, we we understand that there was a, I don't know if you want to call it friendly competition between Sierra online and Lucas arts. Of course, Al Al Allo is professional and he, he mentioned that it was mostly friendly. There wasn't a whole lot of fistfights in the parking lot. But (laughs) I guess since you're one of the first seven, all right, the the first holy seven at LucasArts, what was that like kind of uh, trading blows with them? And and, uh, obviously not like truly physical, but what was that like? Well, I guess
2: uh, I didn't tell you about the the back alley fights, but Um, (laughs) yeah. It was, so Al's actually one of the people who's in that uh, uh, designer group. We have a lot of people who are old uh, graphic adventure designers. Um, Yeah, it was among the people who were making the games. It was very friendly. I think if we felt a sense of more edgy competition is with, you know, Ken and Roberta specifically kind of running the company. And, And part of that is because I have to say, you know, Al was probably pretty, political about it, uh, politically correct about it. But um, I had a lot of friends at Sierra who had a rough time because they were being forbidden to go to the GDC, the Game Developers Conference. um, Mm -hmm. And they were out in Oakhurst, California, which was literally hundreds of miles from just about any place uh, else. And part of that we find out later was a specific thing that they did to kind of keep them from getting poached by other companies you know to to put them out there but in terms of you know person to person i'm still friends with a lot of those um designers and you know it's again it feels like a clan of the people who do the work and not doesn't matter what company you're in. And besides, you know, over the years we've all worked with each other in different companies and moved around. And, you know, it's even hard to uh, remember. I will say one of my little moments of of schadenfreude and feeling like we'd stolen a a march on uh, Sierra was we were, I I was one of the project leaders on Indiana Jones and the last crusade. And I I know it's one of the things you wanted to talk about uh, for, Oh, I don't know. I think about a year before that movie was released, all people knew was the name of it. And they didn't know what The Last Crusade was and you know all of that. Yeah. And we invited Ken and Roberta over for a company screening of the movie. And then we had the game set up in the lobby at Skywalker Ranch for them to play. And they saw the movie and they came out, and they played the game and they looked really upset. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. It wasn't until some months later, That I found out, you know, uh, my my new, you know, new my now friend uh, Christy Marks was working on um, the uh, uh, Quest for the Holy Grail game, and they didn't realize that that was the theme of Last Crusade, the movie and our video game. And we ended up coming uh, yeah. out, I think, mm-hmm. six months before their, their, you know, quest for the Holy Grail. Um, mm. So it was kind of nice to have. have yeah. you know, the, and the reality is Sierra totally outsold us in uh, domestically in the US, you know, they would often sell, you know, five, 10 times as well. Um, but we did a similar ratio in Europe, and we were, you know, much more popular there. So to this day, it's yeah. it's really fun going to Europe. And particularly Germany, uh, they were just nuts about our games. Yeah. And still to today, most of the mm-hmm. really most rabid fans I meet are, are Germans or, or German language, I should say. I find and, that kind of
3: surprising a little bit, but like Mark <laughs> and I, we got our first copy of it. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it was in a clearance in for $10 at a Target in Victorville, California. I had not spent my allowance for two weeks and my mom allowed me to purchase our first copy of Indiana. And it's the one that has like the the manual that's been, looks like has been photocopied, not the nice looking one that you guys used to give with it. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was, mm-hmm. but it was our first real introduction into adventure games because, yep. Um, this I think it was Victor. No, no, it was Topeka, Kansas. I'm sure we got it But, anyways, um, yeah. we thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, it was one of those things that people don't really look at it now and realize that it's kind of intended to be played over many, you know, many weeks or something. People didn't just power all the mm-hmm. way. through and So, anyway I'm just break in there on your mark. Then. Yeah. And, and <laughs> no, wasn't
1: no, okay. uh, because of that popular in Germany, you, like, like, you actually had to stop development of one of the Indiana Jones games? Because wasn't it like the, I think it was called like the Iron Phoenix, was I think too heavy in the Nazi theme? And they're like, we can't, this won't. Accept. No, no, it was actually mm-hmm.
2: Last Crusade, I think, was the first one that we did that was released in Germany. Mm-hmm. And it was true to the movie Mm -hmm. and there were swastikas all through the game and those are you know happily forbidden you know in germany yeah um and uh bucky cameron the one of the artists on last crusade had to go through the entire game turning every swastika into some other kind of you know made up symbol you know in the center of it Ooh. and uh i just remember hearing him in the next room cursing and you know <laughs> being really pissed off at having to do that um mm-hmm. and and at one point i mean he told me he actually counted how many of them there were in the game and the scenes in berlin where you're meeting hitler well guess what they're all over the place. Everywhere.
0: <laughs> yeah that's going to take a while but i mean it sounds like those localization efforts paid off though right i mean without doing that yeah that's that's a, a huge segment of your base that's not there and so
2: oh yeah yeah I mean, it was a, it was both profitable and i'm just i'm very proud of the fact uh when we were talking before we went on I, I, to this day we'll meet people who say that they learned english because they were playing our games and and wanted to see that and the games were translated into I don't know, fifteen different languages. You know, not every game in all the same languages, but I have copies of some of my old games in Japanese and Korean, as well as um, you know, almost every language in, in Europe. And a lot of the games weren't being translated beyond the the top, um, you know, French, German, uh, Italian, and Spanish. You know, they would they would generally mm-hmm. do those, but a lot of the other companies like Sierra would go to a distributor that would just do a few of those languages and distributed it that way. We actually had a guy who went out and made deals with independent uh, distributors in in many of those countries. So for example, a guy in Portugal would do the Portuguese version, which we then also sold in Brazil. And um, it was great because they not only did the translations with local talent, so it was often a better quality translation, but they got a bigger cut of the game. So they were much more uh, eager to to sell it and promote it uh, than when it came through some of the big companies that would you know go through middlemen and they'd only get a tiny uh, fraction of the profits so i my hats off to doug glenn who was our marketing guy who figured that out and and spent a lot of time setting up those those deals um but yeah the the business side of it i'm always happy to leave that to other people but it's really nice when that works out well and in this case i, I love europe i've spent a lot of time out there and it's made it a lot easier just because there are so many, you know, a built-in fan base because of that.
3: Getting into, you know, like the specifics of like the Last Crusade or Fate of Atlantis, and one of the questions that we'd kind of thought about was, you know, having played both of them, I know Mark and I have played them both extensively all the way through all the pathways, everything. Um, was it limiting having like a backing script like for the Last Crusade versus like the Fate of Atlantis, where you guys could kind of make it from whole cloth and do it your way?
2: Um, I enjoyed both of those experiences. Uh, one of the things I've been proud of is that, for many years, Last Crusade was uh, noted by you know people who thought about these things as one of the best games based on an actual movie, mm-hmm. um, because often uh, the particularly back in those days. The, the revenue for the movie was you know literally thousands of times more than the revenue made from the video games. Uh, mm-hmm. our, our head of um, Lucasfilm marketing, at one point when I thought we were starting to do pretty well, I, I said something to him, hey, we're finally kind of raising the bar. It might've been after Last Crusade. And he very kindly said, well, you know, I have to say last year we made more money uh, from Star Wars pajamas licensing alone, just the pajamas and all of the video games combined. was so that kind of put us in our place. And of course, years later, you know, these days games have finally really mm-hmm. swamped, you know, the, the games industry in general, uh, in aggregate is bigger than not just movies, but movies and music combined, which just blows my mind. For a long time, we were trying to, compare it by leaving off video rentals or whatever, but now it's just no contest. The uh, games just keep growing by by significant percentages every year. And a lot of those other forms have either plateaued or just don't grow as quickly. I mean, kids gotta Mm -hmm. sleep, right? You get
1: pajamas, it just makes sense. (laughs) Like, <laughs> hey,
2: there, there you go. And who, who doesn't want to have you know c3po or hand solo on their pajamas <laughs>
0: here's what i want to say though i mean e- even though you, you said it kind of put you in your place i am i'm very happy creatively with what you were able to achieve in these games because from a, a canon standpoint and and really just the intrigue that you build into these games this is the type of stuff like you mentioned that hadn't really ever occurred, even up until I would say about the late 2000s with the Ghostbusters video game, where they continued, you know, the earlier uh, narratives of the movies. And to see you do that with Indiana Jones at this point in time in the early to mid 90s, I, we kind of viewed it as a triumph because we all grew up with Indiana Jones. We loved those films. And then to see that story extend into these games and be done with the level of craft that you did, it was just blown away and so
2: oh, it felt, the fate I mean, of atlantis
0: felt like it could have been a movie
3: too i mean that's i think that's what we're well to. we
2: you know we took pride in uh, i guess uh, one of the things that i ended up doing part-time is that when our licensing department at lucasfilm would get games that other companies had done they'd run them by us to say hey is this worthwhile and um and it uh, some of them were pretty awful but we basically had to okay them as long as they were not total disasters because it was uh, a marketing ploy and not, not anymore, but the stuff we did ourselves, we did not want to settle for that. And Fate of Atlantis, as you say, I, I, you know, Hal Barwood uh, still a good friend. And he brought his screenwriting talents to uh, what he, you know, we did on Fate of Atlantis. And I, one of the, my other big points of pride is the number of people that will say that they wish that that had been, you know, the the fourth movie instead of The Crystal Skulls, you know, or I've even had people say, "I, you know, why doesn't this new movie they're shooting, why don't they just use, you know, Fate of Atlantis? And I, I point out, given, you know, Harrison Ford's age, it would definitely be a little difficult to, to pull that off at this point.
0: Hey, we'd still welcome it though. <laughs> uh,
2: well, I, you know, I, I realize, you know, I don't think this is gonna happen in my lifetime, but at the way the technology changes, in maybe another 20, 30 years, hopefully sooner, uh, one person working alone is gonna be able to put out something that looks like a movie quality right now. And uh, I expect there will be fan versions that will be quite good of that, You know, even being able to steal the voices of, of some of the actors uh, from history. Oh yeah, let's well, just deepfake entire movies any, any day now. Exactly.
3: <laughs> You're not gonna deepfake Harrison Ford, he's not gonna lift that iron grate in the catacombs. He doesn't. Yeah, right. there you go. He, he definitely work.
1: will not be able to handle falling through like three floors to start the movie either. No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, no, no. Oh come on. So they, they just use stunt doubles for all that stuff anyway. <laughs>
0: exactly. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, here's here's something that uh, kind of brought Nate onto the show, and we've been talking about this for many years, Noah. Okay. Nate, you, I'll let you ask the question. It's it's going to be kind of development history, but I, I I wouldn't be able to forgive myself if I didn't let Nate ask this question.
3: For some reason, Mark and I would play this game over and over again. We get to the submarine, and you you walk onto the sub, and there's cold cuts and bread, and so you make yourself a a Dagwood sandwich. And I don't know why this intrigued us as kids, but we would sit there and eat that sandwich over and over and over again. (laughs) Whose chewing sounds were those anyways?
2: Ah, Well, so as it happens, I was uh, laid off at Lucasfilm, uh, before Fate of Atlantis came out, so I was in on the design and writing phases, but Hal was the one who brought it to completion. So uh, by the time they were recording, I have no idea. My guess is it would be, um, you know, one of the actors they used, or maybe even one of the the people. You know, the, we we tended, to, you know, in those days when we were just uh, finding our way through the the first voice in games, we would do stuff. You know, with some of the the people who worked on the game standing in for stuff. We even in the early stages we realized that professional voice actors were a whole lot better than you know Joe from accounting or something. But um, I suspect mm. you know for something like that, rather than one of the guys you're paying a lot, it might well have been you know one of our artists or something.
0: <laughs> it's a great mystery that we've been asking ourselves ever since the mid '90s. Like, who is chewing on this thing? Because
2: uh, you guys are doing a that has. I, this will shock you, but that's never come up in one of the many interviews that I've done. About, <laughs> that. There's,
3: there's like so much like vandalism in LucasArts uh, adventure games that people do like pouring acid on a box or something to get in. You know, you know, it's it seems like you guys, had, you guys, it, the casual vandalism in LucasArts game is kind of a feature that we oh, appreciate. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, there were a lot of things, actually, I've, if you look back. It, well, for I think that goes back to Maniac Mansion, really. With um, you know, we had a hamster and we had a microwave oven, and somebody said, "Well, what if you put the hamster in the microwave?" And oh, God. we had to figure out, you know, how, how to make that work. Um, but also, I realized at one point I was talking, I think to to Ron Gilbert, and I said, "You know, pretty much every graphic adventure we've done has a puzzle involving getting somebody really drunk." Maybe that's not such a great thing, you know, but we, we kept doing it.
0: <laughs> well, that actually does lead us into one of the last topics because you obviously had a hand in some of the development of Monkey Island, especially when it came to the sword play. There were some influences that you helped give into the, the insult sword fighting. But you've also had a chance to play Return to Monkey Island, which has kind of blown up Twitter and, and just social media. We know we can't ask you about the game itself. However, what I want to ask you about with regards to this is because there's a lot of controversy behind the art direction and fans have kind of split on this. What is like what are your thoughts towards the industry during like let's say the Indiana Jones times where feedback was a little more difficult to come by versus what we're kind of seeing now on social media and the return to Monkey Island stuff that's happening?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, obviously it's it's a pretty sad thing when you you get to not just disagreement, but people making threats or being, you know, really uh, uh, not just rude but abusive about stuff. Um, and I find it particularly um, ironic, I guess, you know, to put it in the nicest way, that people are complaining about the art style for this Monkey Island game, saying that it's not like one of, you know, usually Monkey Island Two is what they say it should be like that, and traditionally, quote unquote every Monkey Island game, we did a a fresh art style. So if it looked just like one of the other ones, that would be against Canon. So it just strikes me, you know, and and I will say when I first saw this new art style, it surprised me, but it also, I can say, it took me all of about five minutes before, not only had I accepted it, but I I came to like it. It was some wonderful animation in there. And uh, the other thing is that these games I, I appreciate the art, and I think that's really critical, but for me, it's all about the design and writing at at the heart, and uh, the voice acting is another big component, and I think all of those things are just top-notch in this game. I, I, I can't wait for people to be able to see it so I can talk more freely about it, but something I've said before that I stand by is that I think not only is it entertaining, but it it's really deep in some unexpected ways. I, I expect that people will end up doing, you know, master's theses, uh, analyzing some of what it says about storytelling and humor, uh, where you read between the lines for it, that uh, Ron and Dave, I think in particular, just did a, an amazing job at, at uh, thinking about what interactive storytelling really means, which, you know, doesn't surprise me given there are many decades now that they've been doing it.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and that's what I think is, is really not just the core of the Monkey Island experience. It's really what's at the core of the point and click or action adventure, however you want to classify it, is that you do end up bonding quite a bit with these games, whether it's through the humor, whether it's through some of the uh, sometimes unintended but usually emotional experiences that you get from these two because you're spending a lot of time thinking critically about this stuff, as humorous as it might be. So... Uh, we Nate and I always have always been talking about Monkey Island for many years. We're excited, just like you are, to kind of see it and 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 get you know get involved with it. But for today, though, Noah, we really appreciate this. This is a dream come true for us to get to connect with you and and meet with one of our creators that we've honestly respected for a very long time. Uh, where can folks find you? Like, what's what's uh, like what's coming up next for you? We always like to give the floor at the end here.
2: Sure, well, I appreciate this. and because of some technical difficulties, I know this was a shorter uh, interview than you usually do, and I'm happy to do it again. You guys are great, and you know there's a whole bunch we could touch on that we haven't gotten into. Um, so these days, I'm working with the the overlap of games and healthcare care, uh, which I think to some people, particularly hardcore gamers, may sound really dull, but frankly is one of the most challenging and interesting things I'm doing. Um, I was involved in the early stages of a company called uh, Achille Interactive that uh, is the first game and so far the only game to be cleared by the FDA to be um, prescribed by doctors. Uh, it, It treats pediatric ADHD. Uh, and in fact, the only way you can get the game is through a doctor's prescription, which just blows my mind. And I, I love that. And the game itself has been proven to be you know, roughly uh, as effective as Adderall or Ritalin, but without all of the side effects that they have. Um, another group of a company I'm working with, a, a German company who, uh, in fact, all the people there, I think, played my games as kids. Um, they're called Opavision and they're uh, making a VR game to help with nearsightedness and uh, playing this VR game alone should actually improve people's vision according to the research that they're doing and getting involved with games that help in such basic ways but also are incredibly difficult uh, design problems and really challenging on a creative level. I just, it's really fun. And I, I love the way this industry is constantly reinventing itself and changing. And I expect that I'll, I'll have to keep changing with it as long as I uh, keep working on it, which hopefully will be for for some time to come.
0: Well, very cool. We, we definitely appreciate the time, like we've mentioned. And uh, the only other thing that we um, like to have our guests do is, our, is a quick sign off at the end.
2: I'm Noah Falstein. And until next time, keep on dissecting.